Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Author Rick Blyweiss has always followed his creative curiosity, and it's led him to some unexpected destinations. He was studying filmmaking when he landed the internship that would lead to a career in the music industry. At the same time, he was still making music, and he's also always been a writer. Rick shares his incredible creative adventures with me, from his work on Spinal Tap to some great stories about Melissa Etheridge and the Backstreet Boys, and his current work in the publishing industry and as the author of Pignon Scorpion and the Barbershop Detectives. Rick gave me permission to release this episode on video, so if you'd like to watch, check it out on my YouTube channel. Either way, I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with Rick Blyweiss. Rick, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. I'm very excited to hear your story today because you definitely have maybe more than one story, but <laughs> we'll we'll see where we go. <laughs> sure. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here and uh, thank you for having me on as a guest. Ah, you're welcome. So I start out every conversation with where where did you get your creative start? Were you always a creative kid or did you stumble into something later, like in high school or college? How did that look for you? Uh, no, I, I would have to say I was always a creative kid. I, um, my, I have the genes to some degree. My mother was an educator and a singer on the radio. My father was an inventor, but also a painter and they uh, they were music fans, so they, they just absolutely indoctrinated me in literature and in art and uh, theater and everything from the earliest stage I can remember. And um, I started two tracks actually uh, when I was uh, before I was even a teenager. When I was twelve, I wrote and published a sports newspaper. Uh, that I had four carbon copies made of and sold to my four neighbors. Um, and at the same time, I was already starting to write rock and roll songs. It was in the early days of rock and roll. That was like in 56. And I had a guitar and, and I started writing. So I started writing in, in both music and in uh, whatever, literature, from a very early age. Then uh, when I was 15, I wrote a play. When I went to uh, college, I studied filmmaking, got my bachelor's and master's in that. And I was writing scripts to the um, student films I was making. But all of that time throughout high school and college as well, I was playing in bands, recording, uh, writing songs. And and so it, it just built from there. And my entire career, I kind of was left brain, right brain. You know, some people are all one, some are all the other. I, I think I've got probably equal amounts of both. Uh, I don't know if that makes me fortunate or maybe I would have been better at one than the other if it was more one than the other. But I mean, I, I was a successful businessman in the music industry. And at the same time, I produced at over 50 singles and albums, had one of them was Grammy nominated. And, you know, so, and I was writing newspaper columns and articles, magazine articles. So I, I just was always uh, creative, but I also knew business. You know, I mean, it, I, I get as much enjoyment out of both. I got as much enjoyment 
out of breaking other recording artists as I did being one myself. That is definitely not a combination you are guaranteed to find very often. And so since your parents were so creative, were they also very supportive of everything that you were doing or were they worried that, you know, how are you going to make money and the kinds of things that a lot of people hear? Well, I, I would say I'd be lying if I didn't say that my parents, of course, were concerned where would all of these uh, artistic ventures lead. But at the same time, they were totally supportive. I mean, they bought me guitars. They bought me electric guitars when I was a kid. Um, they, uh, they got me music lessons. And they, they, my father's advice really, which was some of the best advice I ever got, and I've imparted it to my children and other people I've met. My children are now in their 30s and 40s, so they're not really children anymore, but they're <laughs> always children to me, is uh, follow your passion. You know, it, it's like if you're, if you're working at what you're passionate about, it's not going to feel like work. It's going to feel like your passion. And so they always said to me, Follow your dreams, you know, chase the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And, you know, if you don't find it, so what? Have fun with the chase. And I've always lived by that. That is definitely profound and excellent advice. The, <laughs> the process, the having fun with the chase, I think, is as important as the rest of it. it. It absolutely is. And in my life, I've done a lot of chases. You know, I mean, I know the show is about curiosity, and I am very curious, and I, and I, tried many things in my life. And some of them have been very successful. And some of them have been abysmal failures. But as Wayne Gretzky said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, if you don't shoot, you can't score, you know, so it's have fun along the way. And if you score, great. If you don't score, at least you took the shot. And, and you, you know, your life was interesting. Right. Absolutely. So, so how did you make the move from being in bands, getting filmmaking degrees, and then ending up being a music executive? Okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you the, the progression there. When I was in college, uh, for one, two of the years I was in college, I saw an advertisement in the local uh, college newspaper that Colpix Records, which no longer exists a record company, but it used to be the home of the monkeys and <clears throat> others, but this was even pre-monkeys. Um, so they put an ad that they wanted a college intern at my college to work for them. And I applied and I got the job. Um, and it turned out I, at that point, I was at the University of Miami, although I ended up getting my degrees at NYU. I transferred there later. But while I'm at Miami, I got this position as their college rep. And they didn't have any other reps in Florida. So I not only did what they had asked me to do as a college rep, but I started promoting all of their records to all the commercial radio stations throughout the entire state. I mean, I would travel to Jacksonville and all over the state. And I, they ended up hiring me uh, because of that, which only ended when I went to NYU. Okay, now we're going to flash forward. That was in the 60s, the early 60s. Now we're going to flash forward to the early 70s. 
I'm playing in society offers, playing weddings and bar mitzvahs uh, to bring in some cash. And I met a guy who was a saxophone player. I was what they called the rocker. I played bass during the society numbers. And then I got up and sang and played guitar for the rock songs. And I met this older sax player and we became friends with each other. And one day he came to me and he said, you told me you once had a position in a record company. I went, yes, I did. And he said, well, a friend of mine has started up a small independent label in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, they own all the Weight Watchers franchises there in Wisconsin. And he's a, a musician, piano player, and he's not getting very far with his, his songs on his label. Would you be willing to fly, have them fly you out there and give him some advice on how he could maybe do better with his, the records he's putting out? I said, sure, why not? Life's an adventure. Let's go for it. So they flew me out there. I spent the day at Weight Watchers headquarters <laughs> talking about the music industry and everything. And I'm set to go on a five o'clock plane back to New York. And at four o'clock or 345 or whatever time it was, uh, Ralph and Phyllis, who were the, the two people that owned it and it, it said, excuse us. They came back five minutes later and said, so here's what we'd like to propose. We'd like to start an, an office of our record company in New York, and we'd like to hire you to run it. And I became the general manager of Pleasure Records, and I signed acts. I had some records, and um, I found the problem that I had was I couldn't get the records into stores. I didn't have a really good distribution machine. I could get them on the radio, but I couldn't get them in stores. So I went to a company called Pickwick, which was a big company at that point. They, were, they had Cool and the Gang on Delight Records and other big acts and they did well anyway i i went to them and i asked them if they'd be interested in distributing the company and they did but they made it a clause that i was the key man and that i had to come and run promotion and sales for them for their full price labels for them to take the company on and then what happened is instead of distributing pleasure they bought pleasure so I, and from there, I got recruited a year later by a headhunter to go to Polygram, which was then called Phonodisc, which was one of the big five. And that's where my career took off from. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's just so, you know, I, I think we tend to expect that the internship would have led to something else with the same company would have led to, you know, and, and the fact that you had that break in there and then this tiny little startup independent company is how you got back in is just kind of mind boggling to me that it all came together that way. Well, well I kind of have to fill you in on one other thing that was taking place in that interim period as well. A aside from the fact that I was getting my degree and, you know, and, and I will tell you one of the reasons I did not become a filmmaker, even though I love film and still do, is uh, two of my classmates were Martin Scorsese and Bob Balaban. And when I saw what they were doing, I realized there's no way I was going to be as good as them. So I said, I'm sticking with music. But anyway, what happened was I, I did stick with music. And in the late 60s, 
uh, a bandmate of mine and I co-wrote a science fiction rock opera. And we brought it, I brought it. I mean, I, I, again, always been the leader of the bands and, you know, the one who worked with the agents and managers. I brought it to a man named Sid Bernstein. And I don't know if you know who Sid is, but at the time, Sid was one of the most powerful men in the music industry. He brought the Beatles and the Stones to the United States. Uh, I mean, he was a big deal. And Sid fell in love with the rock opera. So he recruited Leonard Bernstein's producer, John McClure, to make a demo of it using the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble as the band who would do the demo. And they were sure, John and Sid were sure, that they were going to either get a record deal or a Broadway play or a film or something out of this. And they ended up bringing it to Robert Stigwood. Robert Stigwood, again, I don't know if you know who your listeners know who he is. Robert Stigwood was an impresario who uh, produced Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Saturday Night Fever. He managed the Bee Gees their entire career. He found and managed Eric Clapton. I mean, he, he was a big deal guy. He owned RSO Records, which was one of the big record labels that the Bee Gees and others recorded for. So Sid brings our sci-fi rock opera to, uh, to Stigwood. And after a week, maybe two weeks, Stigwood comes back to Sid and goes, I really love this project, but I have another rock opera that I'm considering. And either of them could be a play or a movie, but I don't have the time or the capacity right now to do both. I'll let you know in a week which one I'm going to produce. And he produced the other one. And the other one was Evita. Oh, <laughs> now that's pretty good company to be in. <laughs> Absolutely. It's very good company to be. Oh, I don't know which one I'm going to pick. Okay, but I'm, I'm also going to tell you, if you don't mind, what happened okay. after that. Um, so Sid wasn't going to give up after that. And Sid found this man who was in his, I believe at that point, he was in his mid-80s, unbelievably wealthy, who fell in love with it and said, I want to produce this as a Broadway show. And we're going, wow, that's fabulous. But he said, I'm going on a honeymoon. He was marrying a 24-year-old woman. He said, I'm going on a honeymoon. I believe it was to Jamaica, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, when I come back, we'll draw up the papers and we'll get rolling. Well, he died on his honeymoon. And when his wife came back, she went, I don't want to spend my money on no stinking rock opera. Of course. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like I said, if you don't take shots, you know, I mean, it's like it's all life adventure. You know, you, you just... You have to look at everything as I had fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and I'm wondering how you managed to do all of this and still be a student at the same time. <laughs> I um, mean, it just seems like so so many things you had boiling all at the same time. I guess I'm just lucky that I've always had an ability to be a juggler of life events. I I, I just you know some people have to laser focus and you know that that's how they operate i've i've always been fortunate that i could be doing very different things at the same time and had the capacity to to have them happen and just it's been it's me i i can't answer why that's that's totally fair i think i think also 
when you're doing things that you are that passionate about, as you kind of alluded to before, you have more energy because you're busy doing the things that you love, which is a whole different vibe than, oh, Lord, it's Thursday. How am I going to get through six meetings I don't want to go to today and, you know, whatever else? So that's probably part of it. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, <laughs> an anecdote, it, it sort of allied but slightly different. Where um, in the early, early, early days of personal home computing, um, my older son wanted to learn how to use a computer. So there, there was a, a teacher in town, a high school teacher who did private lessons teaching kids how to use computers and how to do programming. And so I was so curious about it that I asked if I could sit in on the sessions. So I'm sitting in the back while this row of kids are sitting at their computers in the front. And I just got totally hooked on it. And I ended up teaching myself how to do computer programming. And I ended up at the company I was at at the time, which was BMG. I ended up actually programming their entire advertising database (laughs) because I could (laughs) and because it was fun. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, I don't I don't know how how early in the computer era that was, but I'm guessing it was fairly early and they must have just thought this guy does everything. You know, what a what a coup that he's working with us. Well, I'll tell you how early it was. I, I, th- that teacher who who taught my son, I I went to him and I said, "You know, most people don't know how to use computers." What if we put together a record album of you, uh, you know, you'll write it about how to use a home computer and we'll, you'll create a booklet that we'll put in because it was vinyl at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you'll put a booklet in, uh, we'll create a booklet that, you know, with, with a, a pretend keyboard that, you know, you can uh, illustrate on. And I went out and I actually arranged for Steve Allen and Jane Meadows. I don't know if you know who they are, but Steve Allen was the original host of The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a, a big TV star at the time. And I got him and Jane, his wife, Jane, who was also a TV star, to narrate it. And that album got a Grammy nomination. And it was called Everything You Wanted to Know About Home Computers But Didn't Know Who to Ask. And it was literally before people really even had keyboards. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that idea. You know, and there, now, you know, when you think about how many online courses, there's an online course for everything, but that's sort of the, the precursor. Yeah. Yeah. There was no online back then. There was no line, period. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a record executive. I know that you are the man who brought us, among others, Melissa Etheridge and the Backstreet Boys. And so how I'm curious, both just from, you know, the straight, what's it like? What do you do? But I'm also curious how it is when you've been in bands yourself. And I know you said you're just as happy to break someone else as to do your own thing, but I'm sure that that perspective feeds in there in a way that someone who doesn't have that background is missing. Yeah, I I would agree with that, actually. Uh, Not, you know, there are exceptions, but uh, 
the thing that I took almost as a guiding principle in the business side of the music business was, excuse me, I wanted to do for whatever acts I was working, what I would have wanted a record company to do for me if I was the act. And since I had that experience on the other side of the desk, and I knew that a record company could put out a ton of records, and if one of them hit, it would pay for the ones that didn't hit. But a musical act didn't. They had their one record that was coming out, and that was their make-it-or-break-it lifeblood. And so you could never lose fact that you're dealing not just with people's music, but you're dealing with their lives. And so that always guided me in how I acted and helped working the acts that I worked with. And and Melissa and the Backstreet Boys were very, very different cases of how we broke an act. And I, I assure you, in both cases, I was not the only person responsible, but I did have a, a pretty good hand in, in in making it happen. With Melissa, it, it was, first of all, she was had a unique voice, phenomenal songs, and she started getting a cult following. So, you know, it, it really was a um, phenomenal live performer. Actually, both acts were perform- phenomenal perform- live performers, but in their own different ways. But you know, she really, uh, we got her on the radio, we got her in live concerts. We, you know, she, she just, her brilliance as a performer and a songwriter was undeniable. So it was really just a matter of getting her in stores, getting her concerts, getting her appearances, really getting people to see her and hear her. And that really was the thrust of what Island Records did. And, you know, I did certainly my part of that. And it was a big part of it. Um, And I'll get back to the Backstreet Boys. Funny anecdote with Melissa. Um, So Melissa's first album goes gold. And she doesn't even know it's gone gold yet. And she's doing a special for VH1. So the, uh, the president of Island Records has a gold plaque made for her, gold album plaque. And he says to me, I want you to fly out to L.A. and I want you to present it to her while she's doing this uh, VH1 special. And he said, VH1 knows we're going to be doing this, but Melissa doesn't. So I I fly out. I I go into the club that they're filming this in and meet with the VH1 guys. I've got the plaque behind my back so she can't see it. And when they give me the signal, I walk on the stage She's just finished one song and she's about to do another. And she looks at me and she goes, what are you doing on my stage? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I pull out the plaque and then she goes, oh. You know, but <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Backstreet Boys. <laughs> um, so Backstreet Boys. Now, Backstreet Boys was a very different situation. Um, the Backstreet Boys, we, uh, I first saw them at a, at a BMG convention, BMG being the record, you know, the, the, the corporate umbrella, if you will, record company. Um, they, they performed a, at our convention, uh, just sitting down, no, no dancing, no nothing, in street clothes, singing a cappella. 
before anybody ever heard of them. I mean, we didn't know who they were. And, you know, some people in, in, after their performance, some of our people said, oh, they're sort of like a boys to men kind of act or whatever. And, you know, whatever. So anyway, so their label was Jive Records. And um, so the guys at Jive liked a lot of my marketing ideas. So they called me in to be part of the core team to, um, to figure out how to break this act. And so, and part of that was because they put a record out and it didn't do well. And so they're going like, well, we got something special here, but what do we, what should we do? So I made two suggestions to them and they actually became the core of the, the marketing plan that broke them. And the first one was that we take them to Europe because their sound, their, their dance sound and their early records was very, very European in appeal. And so it was, I, I said, why don't we take them to Europe, break them over there as superstars, bring them back to the States and let's hire young girls to meet them at the airport, like what happened with the Beatles, not that the Beatles fans were hired, but let's ensure that they get the kind of reception and get a media event out of it, excuse me, bring them back as conquering heroes, which we did. And we didn't have to hire the girls because by that time they were there. So that, that worked. But the second thing I said was Walmart at that point was trying to, was doing dabbling in the music industry. It was, it was not one of their main product lines. In fact, uh, one of their uh, music buyers told me that he got a promotion and he'd not be the music buyer anymore. And I said, well, what are you going to be buying? And he said, tires. And I said, so you're telling me that it's promotion going from CDs to tires? And he goes, well, they're bigger discs. So... <laughs> So anyway, so that'll give you an idea of how committed they were to music at that point. But we knew that they wanted to actually be bigger in selling of music. So I, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we approach Walmart and say, why don't you become Backstreet Boys headquarters? We, nobody had ever done that in retail, become this band or that band's headquarters. And they've got so many stores, and if they get behind, we'll do a special disc for them that's only available through there. They'll do banners. We'll do appearances. Well, to make a long story short, they were very, very interested, but they said, our organization is squeaky clean. We, need, we represent you know, middle America and, and the middle America values, mom and apple pie, and we need to make sure that this act is clean enough that it'll work for Walmart. So they ended up flying to, with us to Switzerland to see the boys in a concert in Switzerland in a skating rink, which was filled to capacity. Five hours before they went on, there were, the lines were outside with screaming girls that never stopped screaming from five hours before the concert until probably two hours after the concert. They were pulling girls out of the, out of the crowd who had fainted and they had, you know, nurses set up. I mean, I had never personally witnessed anything like that myself before, but I know it's happened to other acts. I just had never seen it. Well, the, the Walmart guys are there and they're witnessing this and they're videoing, videoing it. And, you know, and it happened to be at Christmas time. So the boys did a Christmas special and Christmas songs. Well, to make a long story short, they became Backstreet Boys headquarters. And that really went a long way to breaking the band. 
That's amazing. I also didn't realize that anybody had really had a reception like that since the Beatles. So I I don't know. I think maybe new kids did. I'm not positive because I didn't really have anything to do with new kids on the block. But I I think it it, that they may have. But yeah, the for sure, that's what happened with the Backstreet Boys and the kind of reception they were getting. Wow. Actually, I'm thinking back to to my own teenage years and Duran Duran maybe got some of that too. But I still primarily associate it with the Beatles. So to think of it happening in the 90s is a little bit like, whoa, really? Yeah. That's amazing. It was. It it was truly amazing. It it was fabulous. I loved both of those campaigns. The other campaign that I absolutely loved was... um, I, I did a lot of soundtrack uh, marketing for a lot of films, Star Wars, Flashdance, Saturday Night Fever, and others. But the one that I, I really am proudest of, even though it was in a way a failure, was This is Spinal Tap. Are, are you familiar with that film? <laughs> yes. You are. It and goes up to I, uh, 11. <laughs> exactly. And I... Um, there's a man named Russ Regan, and Russ is an industry legend. He he uh, discovered uh, Neil Diamond, uh, Olivia Newton-John, Barry White. I mean, he, he ran 20th Century Records, I believe. Um, and uh, Neil, he was um, he was at uh, he had a label through Casablanca, and I became his marketing guy. So he calls me up one day, and he goes, "Rick," and I go, "Yeah." He goes. There's this soundtrack we're going to be doing. I'm flying you out to L.A. and I want you to meet the guys. And he said, it's going to be a unique project. So I said, sure. He wouldn't tell me anything else about it. So I fly out there and I'm ushered onto a movie lot. And there I meet Rob Reiner and Harry Shearer and Michael McKeon and, you know, the, the, the gang, if you will. And they tell me what Spinal Tap is. They play me some of the early demos that they made and they show me some of the early footage. And they say, we want the album to lead in the film. We want to create a mystique that this band actually existed. And, you know, it's sort of like, how could you call yourself a metalhead if you've never heard of them? You know? So that's exactly what what I did. I went back to New York and and with a a fabulous uh, graphics artist person, Ken Levy, we designed the entire campaign and we replicated the black album jacket. We rep- we replicated, we created fictitious albums that they had before. We did double truck ads, and we did we we created in stores that nobody showed up to on purpose, as you know, mirroring <laughs> what was in the movie. Um, you know, usually you have a party to celebrate selling, going platinum and selling a million albums. Well, you know, in the music industry, everything that you sold, I don't know if it's still true today, was returnable from the, the stores that you sold it to if they didn't sell it. So we did a joke thing where we held a celebration not to celebrate a million sales, but a million returns. And, and we hired Michael Jackson looks lookalikes and Marilyn Monroe lookalikes and Rod Stewart lookalike mingling with all these industry figures. So we really camped it up. And I would say what was interesting is the film became a classic, obviously. The soundtrack didn't do as well. And really, the reason was I'm going to blame radio. And the reason was because radio looked at the songs and said they're not funny enough to be novelty songs, like a Weird Al Yankovic. 
and they're and they're not serious enough that we can take them totally seriously. So they just didn't buy in as much as we were hoping they would. I had never even thought about something like that before, but that it makes sense. And yet, you know, I'm thinking, heard Weird Al right before or after Michael Jackson all the time as a kid, and that didn't really seem to matter. And yet, I think there's there's so much in perception rather than reality of what people will listen to. Yeah. And personally, I think the guys are underrated. Uh, and, and undervalued as musicians and songwriters. And I think Big Bottom and other songs that they did on that album, you know, are really good, fun rock and roll songs. I, I'm sorry that radio didn't come to the party to any greater degree. Yeah. But it sounds like the the campaign that you did was really a, a lot like a big theatrical production. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it was in a way. I mean, that that was the... It, well, the idea was to create a fictitious history of something that never existed and make people believe it did exist. And to do that, you have to be theatrical about it. Yeah, I just hadn't ever occurred to me to think of a, a promotion for something like that in that way. But when you're, you know, essentially staging things and hiring people to be there and yeah, that's that's what it is. It's a party slash show. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that's true of any film that has uh, any kind of identifiable music in it has always been that you wanted to get the music heard on the radio or on TV before the film came out because people already then had a predilection toward the film because they loved the music. And so, you know, we let in Saturday Night Fever like that. We even let in Star Wars, you know, with, with the cantina theme and, and, you know, the Star Wars theme and things like that. But one of the interesting ones was Chariots of Fire, because we we got uh, we got um, again flown to the uh, out to do a private screening. Uh, me and a few of the other people, one of the head of promotion for the record label at the time it was Polydor Records, and um, we were flown to see the film because they they the film company didn't know what they had. And they, they had the Zamfir title song in there, and they knew that that could be something. So they thought if we could lead the film in with that, it would be really helpful. So we go to the screening. I see this film, and I personally thought it was one of the greatest films I ever saw. I mean, I just love that film. But we're walking out of the screening, and one of the promotion guys goes, this film's never going to make it. And I went, what do you mean it's never going to make it? And he goes, there's no blood, there's no guts, there's no thrills, you know? I, I, but we broke damn fear and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the Chariots of Fire theme was all over the radio when yeah. that movie came out. And I I don't know how how it went with Star Wars because back then I grew up in a classical only household and I had not yet discovered that there was anything okay. else. But you know, just the idea of promoting movie music that is not also you know a pop song doesn't have words you know how how does that compare is that is it more difficult does does a john williams soundtrack grab enough attention all on its own that it doesn't really make much difference or do you have to work harder to get it out there 
Well, I can only speak to that era because I don't know uh, if there are very many instrumental things that are very popular these days. You know, I, I just really don't know. Um, I don't follow instrumental music, you know, contemporary instrumental music that closely mm-hmm. to know. But in 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 the what I'd call the golden age of rock and roll, it 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 um, yeah, you could do pretty well with with a lot of instrumentals became hit records, and well well. If the film was big enough, a John Williams soundtrack, look, James Bond theme, mm-hmm. the Star Wars theme. I mean, they they became iconic pieces of music. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, instantly recognizable. You don't you just say James Bond theme and it starts playing in your head. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, like you, I my parents were were into which is part of what helped me in my upbringing. They were into classical music big time. So I had a classical music, but they also were into uh, world music before it was ever called world music. The earliest acts that they introduced me to were Huddy Ledbetter, Miriam Makiba, um, and and, uh, the the Weavers, uh, you know, uh, people like that. And it, you know, and I wasn't into Pat Boone and Rosemary Clooney. I, I was, I, you know, I was into Odetta and it helped me make the transition to R&B and blues and, and rock and roll. And, and that's kind of, you know, and I have my parents to thank for that. Yeah. And that's a, a really rich background to, to be exposed to anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, they were not typical suburban parents. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. Did that end up influencing how you wrote your own music? I would think it must have. Oh, absolutely. Although I I am a sucker for a fabulous chorus, you know, a great (laughs) melody and a fabulous chorus. Okay. Um, I have friends who could care less about that. They're into the musicianship of the, of the musicians. I, I get, uh, I'm the one who's, I'm like, I should have been on American bandstand. I would have given every up-tempo song that vibrated my body in 98, (laughs) you know, so, uh, so I, I'm kind of into that. And a lot of what I've tried to write and produce over my career were hooky, catchy songs, whether they were R&B, rock, pop, whatever. And, um, you know, one, one of the uh, I, I, I flourished in the disco era. And I know a lot of people hate the disco era and whatever. I personally loved the disco era because it was extremely melodic. It, it had a great beat, if you will. And um, I flourished. I mean, the biggest record I ever produced was called Blow Your Whistle, 7654321, Blow Your Whistle, by the Gary Toms Empire. It, it was sold a half a million. It went to number three on the uh, R&B charts, number two, I think, on the disco charts. Um, it was the record that popularized whistles and discotheques. And it, it, um, it enabled me, the disco era, to take all of my love of melody and chorus and utilize it with, with an, in a dance environment where people liked that. Now, at the same time in my career, I've, I've worked acts like Tool and Motorhead, and I've worked rap acts like Wu-Tang Clan and Tone Loke and, you know, Curtis Blow, etc. So, you know, it's like my own personal tastes have never entered into what I work, because what I work is what that artist created, 
And what I created was what I created. Do you find that working with that broad range of different acts influences what you like, though? It opens me up more to things I might not ever have tried if I had not had to have listened to them to be able to do my job. I'm not sure that I would call myself rap's number one fan, but there's what I call melodic rap, you know, like Young MC, Bust a Move, you know, Tone Low, Funky Cole Medina and Wild Thing, uh, Outcast, Run DMC. I love that rap because I find it melodic and I find that I can relate to it. There's some gangster rap and stuff where I just go, uh, this is for someone. It's not for me. Well, and I think that's just proof that not everyone is your audience. Exactly. And, and by the same token, you are not everyone's audience either. And that's okay. You know, it, it's funny. I did a lot of work with Kiss. And, and Gene Simmons uh, had five guiding principles that he kind of created or lived by as, as he was as he was kissed, and I, I had some pretty good an- an- anecdotes and incidents with them, but one of his was exactly that. You have to realize you cannot please everybody. Somebody isn't going to like you or what you're doing. Yeah, and that's okay. And it's okay is exactly right. And, you know, that's something I communicate to aspiring authors. Because, um, you know, I'm also a publishing executive as well as an author. And, and one of the things, and I, I go, I'm online a lot. Um, you know, do a lot of social media posting and things. And, and I, I, I come across a lot of postings by younger authors who are dejected by, by rejection or bad reviews. And, and what I just say to them is, you can't be. If you're going to be in the arts, you have to go in knowing somebody's not going to like you, whether it's your finished product, whether it's a review, whether it's a rejection from a publisher or an agent or whatever. If if that's going to destroy you, you're in the wrong line of work. Absolutely. And and I have to say, one of the biggest gifts I was ever given was several years ago when my my MFA thesis novel, which is the one that I've published, was reviewed online and just absolutely ripped to shreds. And I thought I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I, I mean, and I don't, I, I've never really been in seriously life-threatening situations, but I feel pretty confident <laughs> saying that that's probably pretty close to what it feels like. Um, and I, I mean, like, you know, it was almost like you could feel the blood drain right out of you and all sorts of other fun things with it. But I okay. happened to mention it to exactly the right person. And within minutes, I had a link to an article that was like all of the classic novels that we love that were originally panned. Absolutely. Including, you know, excerpts from the reviews. And when I read the one in particular that stands out for me was the New York Times review of The Handmaid's Tale that absolutely panned it. And I just sat there thinking, wow, I'm in such good company. Well, you know, the one that sticks out for me, because I saw this in an article recently myself, I didn't see that article you're referring to, was, and I don't know who the reviewer was, but it was an article talking about exactly what what that you're talking about. And it's quoted a reviewer saying, 
Stieg Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the single worst book I've ever read. So, you know, it's like, what can you do? You know, Barbara Streisand was turned down by, I think, eight record companies. Harry Potter was turned Mm -hmm. down by publishers. I mean, the list is endless of music. If you don't mind, I'll tell you an anecdote about something that happened. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and one of the heads of uh, A&R from Mercury Records comes into my office and he says, there's this band that sent me a demo. Absolutely love this demo. I want you to listen to it. I said, sure. He puts it on. He plays two songs for me. I go, that's a home run. I mean, that's, that's not just a hit. That's a home run. I said, what's the name of the band? He goes, Trigger. I said, okay, great. Uh, Good luck with them. I hope you sign them. We'll, we'll make a lot of money with them. I was distributing them at the time. <clears throat> and he calls me up two weeks later and he says, we didn't sign them. And I said, really, why? He said, because the guys that own the label don't agree with you and me. They don't think it's a hit. Well, I will tell you that Trigger was Foreigner. And those two records were Feel Like the First Time and Cold as Ice. And they literally sounded just like the finished product that came out. So you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I actually was wondering earlier if if there were stories of the opposite, where you heard someone, you thought they were fantastic, and for whatever reason, they never took off. And, you know, I mean, there must have been. It must be hard to watch that. Unfortunately, there are too many. You know, one of the things that I kept getting asked by friends who weren't in the music industry is, why do some of these records make it that aren't that good when you've got really great records and great artists who don't make it? And, you know, there, there is no one answer for that. I mean, you know, part of it is which one gets the backing of their record company, which one just takes off, you know what I mean? There are flukes there, you know, and some things appeal to people and others don't. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not sure I could sit here and say I have a specific example of an act that should have made it that didn't. But there have been too many of them, and you know, that I, over the course of my career, where I I was convinced an act would make it, and and the public just didn't go for them. Yeah, that's got to be hard to watch. Yeah, it is. It's disappointing. You know, it's disappointing for the artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to have a ringside seat to it, too, it's just like, uh, I don't know. I could I could assume the tragedy of that that must make it rough. So how did you end up making the transition from music into publishing? OK, so I, I spent with the exception of my three years in college at Miami, I spent my entire life in New York City area, most of it in New York City itself, but also in the suburbs. And um, my wife uh, was also in the music industry. That's how we met. And um, we just ended up going, it's time to retire. You know, the music industry was changing. Uh, You know, I was there when Napster was wreaking havoc on the music industry. In fact, Bertelsmann, who I was working for, bought Napster, but they bought him too late after, you know, the horse was out of the barn, if you will. but I'm, I'm looking at a changing music industry. I'm getting older, you know, and, and I, <clears throat> my wife's getting older. And we just kind of go, <clears throat> excuse me, let, let's do a change of pace. So we both retired. 
And my wife said to me, you've lived in New York my, your whole life. I've lived here the last 35 years. And, and let's see what else there is in America. So we started looking around and we were in a Barnes and Noble and there was a magazine, I think called Retirement Now or something like that. And on the cover, it said best small towns to retire to in America. And the number one town was Ashland, Oregon, a home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Oregon Independent Film Festival, a real art, liberal arts town in southern Oregon in the middle of nowhere. And we had never heard of Ashland. So we went, all right, we're going to go to a few places, visit them, see where we want to live. And Ashland will be one of them. When we came to Ashland, we fell in love with Ashland, came about two more times and ended up said, this is where we're going to be. So we moved to Ashland. My wife um, basically was very content not working and just, you know, being at home. I got bored out of my mind. So I joined, I, I went on the board of directors of the Shakespeare Festival, the film festival. I worked with the food bank. I worked, I was on the president's advisory board at the local university. I just, I, I'm an A type. I, I can't not do anything, but it still wasn't fulfilling. Um, so, a friend of mine and my wife's who lives up in Portland called us up and his name's Christopher. And Christopher said, I'm coming down to Ashland uh, to license an audio property to this audio book company down there called Blackstone. Now, Christopher comes from his English and he comes from a long theatrical line of ancestors in Britain. And when he was coming down to uh, license to Blackstone, with the audio rights to Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. um, his uncle was J.M. Barry, who wrote Peter Pan. Okay. I mean, let's give you an idea who Christopher is. Mm -hmm. He's a movie director and an actor, whatever. So he comes down, he, he stays at our house while he's doing his negotiation with Blackstone. And he comes back to the house, said, I, I did the licensing deal, which is still in place. Blackstone still does all the Winnie the Pooh audios. And Christopher said, while I was there, I mentioned to Craig Black, who was the founder and still run, owns and was at the time running uh, Blackstone. And he said, I mentioned you and Deborah, Deborah's my wife, to him and said, you know, they probably have knowledge from New York corporate America that no one in your company has. There's got to be something. If they're interested in maybe consulting to you, I think it'd be in your best interest maybe to meet with them. So Craig, who's a very astute businessman, uh, set up a meeting with Deborah and me. We had lunch the next week. And at the end of the lunch, Craig said, I really have no idea what I'm going to do with you two, but I know that I need what you've got. So we, we started working as consultants and we were on his first ever board of directors. And then Deborah fully retired and I joined Blackstone and went on staff. That was in that 2006 or seven. So I've been there six, 15, 16 years. And I'd just been doing, they, did, they didn't really know what to do with me other than I knew things that they didn't know. And, you know, and, and I mentored people. I, I gave suggestions. I ended up doing things from buying other companies. I, I bought a direct to the consumer marketing uh, company for them that we still own. I, I did licensing deals. I licensed our IT technology out to other companies. And then I started acquiring authors. And the way that happened was um, Josh Stanton, who's the CEO now, he's, uh, and he's part of the 
the family, the black family, if you will. He's a cousin, um, brilliant, visionary guy, young guy. Uh, he came to me one day and said, there are no audio books out for Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'd, I'd like you to go and can you can you get them? You, you know how to talk to people. And so I said, yeah, I'll take a shot at it. So I ended up connecting with his agent in Spain, in Madrid. I don't remember if it's Madrid or Barcelona. I think it's Madrid, but it was Spain, still there. Um, and she basically blew me off, if you will. And a couple of people I know in publishing said, you're never going to get this. There, there's nobody that's ever gotten it. She will not license these rights. Well, I stayed in her face for two years. And after two years, she licensed the rights to me, well, to Blackstone. And then we got some Pablo Neruda. And then I got H.P. Lovecraft and, and others. And so I started doing acquisitions work. Um, then in 2015, Blackstone decided to go into print and ebook publishing and become more than just an audiobook publisher. And so I was asked by Josh to go out and start building, finding authors. So, well, the acquisitions people at Blackstone were working on keeping the audiobook flow going. I was tasked with starting up, for the most part, the print and ebook. So I went out and I was able to do a deal with PC Cast, uh, DJ Molay, a uh, number of other authors. Then I got the entire James Clavell catalog. Um, then I got Gregory McDonald, who has Fletch and, uh, mm -hmm. and Flynn, um, and, and a few other things that kind of launched that initiative. Uh, I signed uh, Natasha Boyd, who had a, a phenomenal book called The Indigo Girl that's been a constant bestseller since it came out. Um, and I signed Nick Sansbury Smith, uh, Helldivers series. And um, so I've kind of been. Uh, and then, then I, more recent times, I started with Josh doing film and TV, trying to get our books turned to film and TV, and, and ended up recommending the man who now works for us, who heads that division. So I sort of have been like the, the scout, if you will, mm -hmm. who, who starts things off, kindles the fire, and then somebody else you know, watches and builds the fire. And then I'm on to kind of the next thing. And I'm still doing, uh, I'm still doing acquisitions work. Uh, there are some major, uh, major uh, celebrities that will be announcements shortly that uh, I've acquired recently that I can't talk about yet because we haven't made the official announcements. But uh, I love doing that. But instead of day-to-day -day stuff, I'm mainly now dealing with like major catalogs, best-selling authors. I did deal with Catherine Coulter recently. We just published one of her uh, books. Um, and, you know, uh, that's kind of what I'm enjoying doing. And then, of course, now that I'm writing, mm -hmm. I, I'm juggling doing the Blackstone stuff with, uh, and I'm involved now. Josh and I are working on influencers and how we can get influencers to be more of a part of what we do as a publisher. Um, so, but now I'm juggling writing as opposed to music with being an executive and I'm having a ball. <laughs> well, it sounds like it. And it, it is interesting to see the the parallel between being in your own band and being in the music industry and now being an author and being in the publishing industry. 
Well, you know, it, <clears throat> working with authors and working on their campaigns has really helped me as an author, uh, both in my creative process of seeing what's good writing and what's not good writing. Um, and because I've read a lot of turkey manuscripts too, not just the good ones that mm -hmm. I bought. Um, and also in, in watching how we set up, how books are set up. But even more than that is authors that are better at promoting themselves than others. And in today's environment with the, the internet and social media, you know, I don't care whether an author is self-published or published by a traditional publisher. It's incumbent on them to market themselves. If they don't, they're seriously behind other authors who do, and at a tremendous disadvantage. Well, I learned what to do for my books, both from my music industry experience, because I took a lot of that and imported it to my book and, and its marketing, but also from what I saw from the books that we were publishing and that, what the authors were doing. Yeah, I'm sure. So I could ask so many questions about that, but I've don't want to leave the actual book out. So okay, please, tell, yes. tell, yeah, right. So tell me how, how you got the idea that you wanted to write mystery novels and how all that's gone and tell us all about the books. Is it okay if I hold it up so people know what I'm talking about? You can though, this is going to be just audio unless, unless you want well, then, me to put it out as video, which I could do. <laughs> I'd be fine having you do it both ways. Okay. Then go ahead and hold it up. And, and if people are listening and not watching, it's Kenyon and the Barbershop Detectives. Okay. Um, so when I moved to Ashland, my next door neighbor was a poet. And she was in a writing group. And I started writing two columns for a local news magazine. Um, called The Blyweiss Blog was one and Life in Ashland was the other. And I was having a ton of fun. Again, the word fun, I, you know, I, 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 one of the most fun things I did in, in there was I did an article on um, a ghosts that were haunting our local university. And I, it, it was just, I, I loved what I was doing. That, that was just one of my favorite articles I wrote. So um, my next door neighbor, this poet, Peggy, she said, you know, you're you're a pretty good writer. Have you ever thought of writing fiction? And I said, yeah, I, I wrote a play or two, you know, whatever, but nothing ever came with them. It was many, many years ago. Most everything I've ever written was nonfiction. She said, why don't you just join a group? We have nonfiction writers, fiction writers, poets, whatever, novelists. Um, I think you, you would like the people and they would like you and, and maybe it'll stir your creative juices. So I joined the group. And I started trying my hand at short stories. And one of the very first short stories I wrote was the Pinion Scorpion, a Pinion Scorpion short story, which actually became the basis of the first story that's in the book, uh, or the first crime that's in the book, if you will, a, a crime of a fortune seeker. And um, I, I was writing other things. I ended up, uh, over the course of about five years, in addition to writing the Scorpion book, and I'll talk more about that, I wrote a, a science fiction book called Tourists from Other Dimensions about how Earth is actually a vacation destination for uh, beings from other <laughs> dimensions. 
and that never went anywhere. And then I wrote one called Lucky Lenny and Hector Go to Vegas, and it's magical realism. Uh, that never went anywhere. And then I wrote a lot of short stories that I compiled into a short story book that never went anywhere. Uh, and all the time while I was writing part the Scorpion book part time, if you will. And my writing style, the way I write is, is totally pantsy, total seat of the pants. I do not outline. I do not bullet point. I, I, something pops into my mind and it plays out like a movie. And my job is to sit there at the computer and type out and describe for a reader what I'm seeing in my mind. I did not have a character name. I didn't, I didn't have a, all I had initially was a setting in a countryside town in England back in the early 1900s and the beginnings of a crime. And then all of a sudden, everything started populating in my mind, the characters, the barbershop, etc. Part of why all that happened is I've been a mystery aficionado my entire life. I mean, I started with the Hardy Boys and, and, you know, and then I, I read every Agatha Christie, every uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. I read Chandler and Hammett and Ellery Queen and Earl Stanley Gardner and Chester Himes and Rex Stout. You know, I mean, I love the genre and I love that era, that Downton Abbey era of the early 1900s in, in England. And so it, I, I just sort of said, what if I created, and this popped into my mind, what if I created a universe where Poirot, and Holmes really existed. And the third leg of that triangle or that stool was a character that I came up with. And that's kind of what I postulate in the book. In the book, I even postulate that uh, Scorpion was a friend of John Watson's after Holmes had passed away. And he was on it going to meet with Poirot in the coming year to compare deductive technology uh, ways of doing things. And so the, the story just started unfolding. I loved the fact that I thought it should take place in a barbershop because in that era, the barbershop was a, a central gathering place of gossip and rumor and, and, you know, meeting, people meeting. People wouldn't even go there to get their hair cut all the time. They'd sit there to talk to each other. So it was really kind of a natural environment and one that has not been utilized that much in literature Beauty shops have been used a little more, but not a ton of barber shops. Some Barber Seville, I guess, you know, but <laughs> Figaro, uh, but, and, and, you know, and some others, but um, not a lot. And I just thought it would be kind of a cool environment and, and unique. And then um, all of a sudden, in my mind, I it just popped in that Scorpion's father was going to be uh, Egyptian and his mother Haitian. And then I, it, how they met just came to me. And then I had to come up with a name for Scorpion. I didn't have a name for this character. So I knew I wanted something that was a little left of center, like Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes are not your run-of-the-mill everyday names. So I wanted something like that. So I, I first went after his last name, Scorpion, and I'm, I'm researching Arabic and Egyptian names. And I came upon this name, Scorpion. I'm going, this works on two levels. One, it's kind of not too foreign sounding because it's just like Scorpion. People know the mm -hmm. word Scorpion. And also it stood for adventurous and entrepreneurial, and that was his father. That's who he was. So then I said, well, now I need a first name. 
And I researched Haiti, where his mother lived. And I found that there was a real area, a, a real town in a mountain in Haiti called Pignon that was named after, I believe, it, it, I don't remember his first name, but his last name was Pignon, who was the first, he was a French explorer, who was the first European to ever go to find that region in Haiti. So they named it after him. And so I postulated that if his mother lives in Pignon and his father goes there and that's where they meet and conceive their child, wouldn't it be cool to do a ritual naming of him after that? And I love the way Pignon and Scorpion worked together as two names. And that's how he ended up being named Pignon Scorpion. It's a great name. <laughs> Thank you. It's a, it's a memorable name and it, it, it has that kind of rhyming kind of vibe to it that just it makes sense. It's like that those two words should always have gone together. <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, it's <laughs> nice to have you say that. I feel that way, but you know, I mean, I'm prejudiced toward it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little, probably. So, so how was the process of writing the the book? I mean, you know, obviously you've got the whole pantsing thing going on and, and things are just coming to you, but was it as kind of as you expected or was it more challenging uh, it was probably more challenging than I expected on on uh, on two levels, really. Um, one level was I would write and then I would go back and reread everything that I wrote and adjust it. So even though I was flying by my pants, I knew that wasn't enough. So one of the challenging and time-consuming things was constantly going back and making sure there was continuity and, you know, the, the grammar was right, spelling was right, you know, et cetera. <clears throat> the second thing, and, and obviously when I had completed the book, I went back and I had to add red herrings. I had to, you know, I wanted to make sure people went, oh, I didn't figure out that mystery. But they also didn't say, well, now how in the heck was I supposed to figure it out? There were no clues. So I had to make sure that I got it right. So it, that took a lot of time and a lot more than I expected. The second thing that really just blew me away was the amount of research I had to do because I wanted to get as much of this book right for the time and the place and the characters as I could. And even though I had been to England many times in my life, certainly not in 1910, I'm not that old, <laughs> uh, but um, I, even, I even went there once and was in a castle and won a crossbow competition. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, anyway, so... I still knew I had to get rid So the amount of research that I had to do on the locale, the names that were in vogue at that time, the, the clothes they wore, what businesses existed in towns, how people spoke. I mean, the book is written in a cadence and a language of that era. It's, it's not written contemporarily, if you will. It's, I, I like to think it's closer to the way an Agatha Christie would have written than a Tom Clancy. Um, you know, and 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 I I just I had to research Haiti. I had to research Egypt. I had to research. I, I postulate in the book that his father was one of the first people to use ice to transport a perishable. So I had to research that and other real life events of the time, songs of the time, books that were popular, painters of the time. They all play into it. There's a scene in the book that takes place in the American Wild West. Uh, it's kind of a flashback or a prequel, if you will, to one of these crimes, a crime of passion. I had to research the settlers and, and indigenous people's relationships in the, in the American West of that era. 
And, you know, I wanted to get as much of it as I could write. I think there will still be some people that say I got some of it wrong. If I did, it wasn't on purpose because I did a ton of research and I tried to get as much of it right as I could. I had no clue how much research there would have to be. Yeah, it's it's a lot with anything historical. It's definitely because I my my work in progress is set in London in 1893, and I, the amount of time that I spent trying to figure out what kind of streetlights there would have been in London exactly. in 1893 alone, it's like really, why is this hard? <laughs> oh, I, I, I the same thing. Is it gas lighting? When did electric lighting? Yeah. When did crank automobiles start? You know, because I have an automobile in, in the book. Yeah, everything like that. Your your absolute telephones, you know, mm-hmm. that, when did telephony start? You know, I mean, um, yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It was, it was amazing. The good thing is, it is, for my book, historical fiction. It's not based on real life events where, you know, if I did get something a little bit wrong, well, it's fiction. Maybe, you know, it, but it's not like I'm trying to recreate the sinking of the Titanic and I got something major wrong. You know, it's a book of fiction. I just tried to make it as real as possible. Right. And, and you would hope that, you know, readers would be sympathetic to the fact that you did a whole lot of homework and that shows. And if something is off, you it's not like you just sat down and didn't do any research and the whole thing is off. You obviously put in a lot of effort. Oh, yeah. And, and, and then after I wrote the book, I had a number of Native Americans read it and a number of Brits read it, and they made contributions to correcting a couple of things I did get wrong. But I didn't want it to go out there with any faults that I could correct or become aware of. Um, and, you know, and I, I also uh, I wanted the book to have humor. You know, we, we live in a very, very stressful world. Um, and, and with what's going on in Ukraine, making it even more stressful. Mm-hmm. But you had enough stress even without that. And I, my goal in writing is to entertain people first and foremost and to give them a break from the stress. I don't want to write a book that creates more stress for people. And so I tried to write a book that took place in a kinder, gentler era that doesn't have blood and guts in it that has colorful, eccentric characters and humor where people can solve mysteries and laugh at the same time and, and kind of be transported away from today for a little while. And I hope I've, I've achieved that. It's an admirable goal. And that's really what fiction is about anyway. You know, it's, it's an escape. If you happen to learn something in the process, that's cool too. But mostly, most of us pick up a novel we're just looking to check out from reality for a little while. So, right. yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that I, the book's been getting really, really good reviews from both the public and other authors. And, uh, you know, it's been picked by a number of an Amazon editors pick and Barnes Noble picked it uh, publishers weekly pick. And, you know, so I, I'm knock on something air, uh, you know, it's 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 really going well. There's uh, two companies in the UK that are considering it now to possibly do TV or film of it. Uh, I don't know if that'll happen or not. And if it does, that's the cherry on the Sunday. And if it doesn't, uh, what the heck? I've just finished writing the second book. Um, and like the first book, there are three crimes in it. In the first book, it's a fortune seeker, a murder at a circus, and a crime of passion. 
In the second book, there's a hot air balloonist who is shot and killed while in the balloon alone. Uh, sort of one of those like locked door mysteries, mm-hmm. but it's not a locked door. It's in a balloon, hot air balloon. <laughs> uh, and there's a, uh, a client in the barbershop who drops dead of no apparent reason, but there is a reason. And then there is a blacksmith who is helped on his way home at three in the morning from having helped uh, a friend birth twin calves and he's shot to death. And those are the three crimes in the second book. That'll come out a year from now. And, you know, whether there'll be a third book or not, I don't know. It depends how well the first two do. I hope there will be. I enjoy (laughs) writing. You know, one of the things I find, and I bet you do as well, is when I'm writing, it's like an alternate reality to me. It's the characters become my friends. I want to know what happens to them. Yeah. And, you know, when they start talking to you, you know, you're doing something right. And after you finish and a couple of weeks go by and you realize that they're starting to fade. It's like, but no, wait, come back. (laughs) Amen. I hope I'm not talking too much. No, you're fine. You're great. And, And honestly, I mean, it sounds to me like you're doing something right here. If you've got somebody in the UK looking to turn it into a series or a movie and everything else. So I hope that people will will go check it out because it sounds like a lot of fun. I do too. You know, um, I I don't know how much time we have, but I I know this show, uh, your podcast is about curiosity. And, you know, um, I have, uh, one of the things that, that I always say to younger people, because I've taught college courses too. And and one of the things I always say is, you have to be curious. You know, the world around you is too interesting, both the people in it, the events in it, and the things in it, not to have a curiosity about them and to broaden your, your horizons. And if all you do is have tunnel vision on a very narrow path, you are missing out on so much of life. And, and I, I, I applaud you for having a show that is about curiosity because it's really an important thing for human beings. I agree. And I think curiosity and creativity are two sides of the same coin. And so the more curious you are, the more likely you are to be creative and, and vice versa. There's no, there's no separating the two. But on the rare occasions when I've met someone who doesn't seem to have much curiosity, it's, I think it's something we take for granted because when I've been in those situations, it's been like, whoa, hang on, what's going on here? I don't, I don't understand. You don't wonder about anything? Right. (laughs) How does that even work? You know, I I think that a lot of us just, you know, and, and in the age of Google, when you can reach into your pocket and pull something out that will answer your question in seconds, which I'm not convinced is good for us, um, even though I do it as much as anybody else. I agree. You know, we probably don't notice curiosity as much because it's instantly resolved. Yes. But but still, the fact that, you know, you want to know about something and you ask questions and then if you're doing it right, when you get the answer to that question, you have another question based on something that you just learned in there and you keep going. I, I think that's a a gift to yourself and probably everyone around you because it will lead to things that, as you say, if you're not asking questions, you're just going to be staring at the same stuff all the time. That's no uh-huh. way to live. Absolutely. You know, I, um, when I was younger, 
I was in a summer stock production of uh, The King and I. I, w- I was the royal prince. And then I didn't act for a long time. And then I kind of got the bug and said, well, I, I wonder what it'd be like to be an actor. So I, I signed up with a talent agency and I ended up getting a bit part in Sex in the City. I was in a Billy Baldwin pilot. Um, I almost was in The Sopranos. I got asked to be in it, but I was away the week they were filming. I'm, I, it's one of my regrets in life that I wasn't in that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I've always tried things because you never know what you're going to like or not like if you don't try them. Uh, one, of, one of the things uh, my wife and I did a number of years ago was we took a course in um, meditating and manifesting. And I, and I do manifesting. And, and I just think it's very cool. I, I did past life regression under hypnosis, uh, found that phenomenal. I traced myself back to Neanderthal times. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've dug up fossils, I, you know, I, I, it, it, in fossil quarries. I, 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 I just, I guess I have a naturally curious mind and it adds to the enjoyment of life when you try different things and have different experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. And I feel like that is as good a note as any to end on. Because sure. we have gone for almost an hour and a half, which is great. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> I did talk too much. I'm sorry. No, no. It was a fabulous conversation. And I really, really appreciate you coming and spending some time with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That's our show. Thanks so much to Rick Blyways for joining me and to you for listening. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. It's 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. 